Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That is your time. Today's clean energy entrepreneur is a returning guest, one that no doubt almost needs no introduction. John Berger founded Sonova, publicly traded solar services company, way back in 2012. It was by no means his first venture. We don't go too far back in the rabbit hole of his formation and his early companies. I do mention them in the conversation that we have, but mostly we focus on John's perspective from the perch of one of the most uh, influential solar services companies in uh, the United States and arguably the world, Sonova, his thoughts on the transformation of the energy sector, what it means for consumer choice, a term that comes up a lot in today's conversation, and how his more than two decades of experience in the electric power industry informs his vision for our renewable energy future and free market competition, the advancement of energy technology to power our energy independence. I hope that you'll stick around because I promise you are going to learn a lot. I also hope that you've subscribed to the podcast. That'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out the over 500 additional clean energy founders stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. Without further ado, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. If you're a longtime Suncast listener, you've definitely heard John Berger on the show. We most recently had him here uh, when I was visiting in Houston for Sarah Week. And the reality is I've never actually gotten a chance to do more of a long form interview with John. And I'm incredibly grateful for the generosity of his time today, as well as his team, Kelsey and Alina. Thank you all for helping make it possible. John, welcome at long last to a long version of the John Berger interview on Suncast. Thanks for having me, Nico. You win the award for best boardroom mic and video setup in the 500 plus episode Suncast Canon. You win. <laughs> for what it's worth, I know you're a, comp- a competitive guy. So, uh, so you've got that. Um, I wonder, did you grow up playing sports or anything like that? Yes, I, I played football. I, I can't say I was uh, any good at it, but I did. I did uh, play it, and I did. I did finish uh, all all years from middle school to high school. So it was an wow. accomplishment to finish. There you go. Uh, but uh, that was it. I mean, I said you're a competitive person. Do you feel like that's true about you? Yeah, definitely guilty as charged. Uh, definitely competitive. <laughs> you know, hopefully, you know, you, you you've got to put that in check in in some ways, right? Uh, you, it, like anything, you're too much of a good thing it can lead you down paths of, that are that are very self destructive and harmful. Yeah. And and we've seen some of that in, in out there in my career and so forth. But uh, with from others, but you know, I I, I try to. Yes, I'm competitive, but I try to keep it in check, so to speak. I find that, you know, there's a period that most of us, and I'll say us, competitive type A folks, 
that exhibit some form of leadership early in life and are told, oh, you're going places, kid. We have, <laughs> we have this moment. Either it's, it's fostered, uh, and I can think of an uh, example of where it was probably really fostered in your career, or it is, it's, it's covered up like that light has a, has a shield put around it for a while. And that was true for me in my 20s where people were like, man, you're just like, you're too much, you're too ambitious, you're too, too everything. And I didn't have a real uh, network surrounding me that would encourage and foster what I would call entrepreneurship, right? I, I was really in that lane of like, go get an education, follow the corporate path. When you reflect back on uh, your formative years, are there particular moments where you had glimpses of entrepreneurial tendency? What was the, what was your family life like that might have uh, suggested that this was, this was a path for you? I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. Um, so it was, my dad was uh, founded his own firm after the, the oil bust 1985. He uh, lost his job and uh, at that point in time just happened to inherit a little bit amount of money. And we moved to Bryan from, from Houston, uh, Bryan College Station. So I grew up there. He, he founded his own geotechnical materials consulting firm, which is basically you go out to a construction site and you inspect it, make sure the contractor's doing the, the, the right work. So I grew up in that business. I grew up in the construction site. That was really formative for me because as, as a young kid, all the way through college at AM, I was sent to job sites and I was the inspector. And so I could do things like send trucks back and so forth that cost lots of money if I made that decision. And you had to, you had to be strong. The construction site is not for the timid, shall we say, uh, particularly one of like 30 plus years ago. So it really formed me from being an entrepreneur, but also having to have at such a young age accountability and, and, and have to demonstrate leadership in a very tough environment. And, and then when I came out of AM and, and, and obviously started my career and then wanted to go meet the woman of my dreams and such, I, I had to make sure that that was going to match up with what I wanted to do, which was uh, be an entrepreneur and so married an entrepreneur's daughter. Um, and everybody in the family now is an entrepreneur. And I, and I would say we just celebrated our 22nd anniversary a few days ago. And, and it's definitely a key piece of, of understanding and having the ability to last 22 plus years is, is to have that understanding from your childhood of being an entrepreneur when you, when you marry an entrepreneur. I wasn't sure how I'd work it in because I know that your wife plays uh, a crucial role, as I've pointed out in many interviews here. It is almost never a one person job. The ability to grow the entrepreneurial dream, in your case, multiple times and see it to fruition requires, especially if you choose to have a family, it requires an incredible amount of support. Was there a conscious process for you of finding the quote woman of your dreams in terms of, or that, that partner that would support you? I get the sense from you that you knew you needed to find someone who came from entrepreneurial uh, roots in, in, a, in order for them to understand you, so to speak. Yes. I can't say every single Friday, Saturday night or Thursday or whatever it is that that was my, my goal, right? I don't think any, that would be, anybody would say that. But I would say that if, in long-term you know, marriage, it, it was definitely a, a heavy consideration. I, I noticed that others that had gone down the entrepreneurial path, there, there, there's a high to, uh, divorce rate. And having now had that experience in terms of life with being an entrepreneur, I can say like, yeah, no, I understand why. It, it takes a lot of dedication. It takes a lot of, you know, this idea of work-life balance, like that you can throw that out the window. Uh, and this is all in if you want to make this work. 
and having somebody that understands that versus, hey, why don't you just be a dentist or, you know, whatever and, and, and work 40 hours a week or 50 or whatever it is, the ability to know why that I can't do that, especially as you get later in life too. You know, if you make enough money at some point you go, what are you doing this for? And it's not the money. It's definitely try to, you know, from, in my case, want to change the world, uh, love the business and, and want to leave something, you know, the world better than, than when I found it. Those are attributes that I think for m- most people will look and step, take a look back and, and, and take a step back at rather and say, I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Why do you work all those hours when you could do, you know, go play golf and do this and spend more time with the you know, family and so forth. So it's real sacrifices, but it's, it's, it's who I am. So you need to find somebody else who would understand that. It's a little hard to understand that if, if you've never experienced it in life. And so, yeah, it was a conscious decision on my part. Was it to make or break? I mean, there's plenty of other attributes like personality fit, life fit. Do you want a family? How big? You know, what do you want to do? What's important to you? Is, is God important to you or not? You know, that, that, you know, these are all things that were certainly just as, as, as weighty as variables in that equation than being an entrepreneur. But it certainly was a, a certainly something that I personally heavily weighted. And, and I was, and in retrospect, I was right. For those of us coming along behind you, uh, truly at this moment, looking at your example of 22 years of uh, a faithful partnership, is there anything that you can point to that you and your wife have done to help ensure, not that it was the single uh, silver bullet, but to help ensure that connectedness in the face of the incredible success and subsequent stress on your life and your marriage? Uh, along the way, you know, I I would say that being close with the, the the family, both mine and and then certainly again, she came from entrepreneurs. All her brothers, even her even her sister, so everybody and and, and my brother in law who married my sister in law were all entrepreneurs, and that that helps a tremendous amount to have that not only within the you know our family, uh, Kristen and mine, but but also within the wider family. You know, again, my father was an entrepreneur too, so my my brother and sister understand that. So I think that closeness certainly was helpful, and I would say constant communication. You know, sometimes that communication is easier than other times. It is is certainly needed, but I think it's also just it takes the right person to understand and really be able to take those sacrifices with me and be willing to do it. So what am I getting at? Kristen stayed at home with the kids. We just dropped our uh, our oldest off. We had four and five years, so they're very compact. And our oldest just got dropped off at Texas A&M on Saturday. Highly emotional weekend. You know, the culmination in many ways as they leave the nest, so to speak, of her sacrifice of her career and what she, you know, may may have wanted to do, but to make sure that the, the, the children turned out great. And so far, you know, we're doing a great job. And... Uh, She's doing a great, has done a great job, is doing a great job. And that, that, without that dedication, without that sacrifice, the kids, I, I strongly feel wouldn't have turned out well. And, and I couldn't have done, you know, Sonova in, in what I've done in my career. There's, there's no doubt about that. So it, it took on the part of Kristen to sacrifice so much to, to make it happen. I appreciate you letting me ask uh, those intimate questions about your family. I think for me, it helps to paint uh, a more well-rounded picture of you 
as a, as an entrepreneur and as a leader who, to your point, you've had successful ventures. Uh, it's arguable that certainly at this point with Sonova as a publicly traded company, you don't need to do this. You choose to do this. And I, I really appreciate it. You know, one of the things that I like to ask, and I'll try to ask it early enough in this interview to be relevant, is around the options. So we we make decisions and, and our life is is really directed by the decision tree. If we look back on it, where do we turn left instead of right? I wonder what career path did you not go down, but always thought that you would? You know, when I came out of Texas A&M, I always wanted to get an engineering degree from Texas A&M, ended up being civil engineering to match with what, you know, I grew up in. And I wanted a, an MBA from Harvard. And I, and I did that. I mean, at 13, that's what I wanted to do. And I actually executed on that. I always wanted to be in the energy business as well. But, you know, going back into the late 80s, early, early 90s, at least from my standpoint, renewable energy wasn't on the radar screen. I didn't know what it was. Certainly in Texas, you grow up around oil and gas. And so I thought I was going to the oil and gas business. And nobody else wanted to really go into the oil and gas business because I'm graduating in 1996. The dot-com boom is happening. You know, the oil business is, you know, terrible. And so I wanted to do it because nobody else wanted to do it. So I signed up to go get a job and I thought I was getting sent on a platform out in the Gulf. Turns out I was put on the power trading desk and it was really the hourly trade desk. I didn't know that existed. I was just doing what I was told to do. And I was also told to work nights, weekends, which I was like, isn't that why I work so hard at school to get an engineering degree? Right, and, and, don't, I, and don't I get time and a half at least for that? <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> it, no. Uh, and And so... <laughs> Right out of the gate, I packed all my stuff up. I graduated, packed it up, went to Houston, got an apartment, started that, you know, graduated, I think Friday or Thursday or whatever. And I, I was in at work at Monday because I, I went, I needed the money. Then they put me on the hourly trade desk and I was working nights and weekends. From there, you know, the, the rest is kind of history. I stayed in the power business now for over 26 years. So it was, it was a happenstance to really have fallen into the, into the power business. It wasn't intentional. Again, it's easy to look back and say, gosh, this guy, he sort of falls up, right? Like, but you, it's very clear through asking the right questions that you were extremely intentional without going into details about how you did a job search coming out of college, et cetera. You, I would say very fortunately, but if I had a guess, very intentionally landed at none other than Enron, the hottest energy company, not just in the United States, not just in Texas, but in the world in the nineties for all of the reasons, arguably the most innovative energy company of the last hundred years that doesn't have Westinghouse or GE attached to it, right? Um, changed the way the game was being done. I'd love to know, and I think we could do an entire episode just on your musings about Enron. So instead of that, what I'm really curious about is what did you learn from Enron that influenced how you run business and how you think about the energy market? Well, I, I do think that Enron was the most consequential energy company that we you know, had mm -hmm. up until maybe recently. Um, obviously, I'd love to see someone say someday that Sonova was a, a consequential energy company. Obviously, I'd love to that to been you know to be set in the in the minds of being very good. Enron, of course, has a lot of it conjures a lot of negative uh, feelings and. At the time, as you pointed out, Nico, it, it, that was exactly the opposite. It was where everybody went that really wanted to make a difference in the energy business. And I would remind people respectfully of that, that, that there was a lot of folks that I worked with that became uh, very, very successful running you know, global commodity groups for major banks and 
starting their own, you know, hedge fund being fantastically successful and, you know, all sorts of, of, of constructive things in renewable energy. I mean, there's a number of former Enron uh, people. I think the executives, you know, you know, most of those are at the, at the, so the latter part of their career, if not retired at this point, that were there just for time's sake. But yet those of us that were younger we're now hitting in that stride of, and, and really a lot, there's a, quite a few of us in the renewable energy spot. What I learned, you know, I will, I will say this, understanding the physical system, I very quickly came away with, this is archaic. The way that we've set up our power system is industrial uh, age, not digital age. And remember, this was the time about the dot-com boom. That syncs up with coming out of Harvard Business School, where I, I, I had a feeling that the Chinese or the rise of China was going to have an immeasurable positive impact in terms of consumption on energy, and there was going to be a huge boom, which there was right up until the financial crisis, right? And shale gas and oil took over, and so forth. And we can talk about it later. But essentially, uh, what I would say with with Enron, there was things that I took away that I use to this day that yes, are part of form, uh, formative for Sonova, both the bad and the good. The bad. I do not like financial engineering. I want to keep cash flows. I strongly believe in keeping cash flows. Why? Because I look to the collapse of Enron. And I know that if Enron had kept its cash flows and not been uh, so highly levered, so financial structured that I don't believe that management ever understood how levered the company was, that the company would have gone through even an accounting scandal and still been here. But the rest is history. It did not. It collapsed very, very quickly. I left in August to go to business school, and by December, early December, uh, the company had filed for bankruptcy. It's an amazing, you know, drop in a, what had been a Fortune 10 company. So there's the learnings from the painful side and the bad side of things that I've taken to heart and try to fix, if you will. The other, the other side is the, what's the good? The good was that we bring the best and brightest in. That you push the envelope in the sense of innovation. That you push people to think differently that you allow them to question, why, are we, why have we done this way? Should we not do it a different way? You know, what is it that we can think about at, at the world and pattern recognition of all these different you know, pieces that are going around in the world? Uh, how do you put all those pieces together and really come up with a, a good strategy that can change the world, in this case, of, of energy? And that innovation, that, you know, ability to or willingness to go out there and push innovation is something Enron did second to none. Uh, And I think was a complete tragedy that Enron's failure, I think, set the energy business back at least 20 years in terms of innovation that we just now have started to broach and really, you know, pick up. Deregulation, consumer choice was arguably killed by the collapse of Enron. That's another thing that I think is a real complete tragedy for the, you know, the American public and consumer that I think will be rectified at some point down the road and allow capitalism and innovation and consumer choice to be put into the power industry, driven by the new technologies of solar batteries, software, EVs, et cetera. It's funny you've mentioned two uh, seemingly four-letter words in, in, this, uh, in the segment around Enron. The first, and I'm wondering how it has been viewed as a philosophical position is cash and cash is king. Cash flow is important. Uh, but obviously in the, in the current sort of venture fueled growth mindset of clean tech and every other tech, cash is secondary to leverage in the way it was in the Enron days. And secondly, uh, 
deregulation is often a four-letter four letter word. Uh, you mentioned consumer choice. My first question is, how has your view on cash flows been questioned or have you had to defend it at Sonova, especially as a publicly traded company? Yeah, I, I think it's, it, it, let's be honest, it's, a, it's a, been a huge fight. And, and I think over time, I'm, you know, it's very clear that, that, you know, we're winning that fight. I'm winning that fight because at the end of the day, cash flow per share, in my view, is the only thing that matters. You, you create more than, than what you took from investors so that you can get back the cash flow per share uh, return to the investors or you don't. And, and that's as simple as did you create value or did you, did you not? Now, I, I know others have different views on that, and that's the point of your question. Uh, but I, I think that going through very difficult times, which we certainly you know, see, and I would argue we're seeing still now, cash at the end of the day, as you said, is king. And, and I don't know how you ultimately argue against a company keeping its cash flows and making sure it has a strong bedrock of cash flows. Because if you're trying to build something for the long term, you must have that, in my opinion. I would point to, you know, look at the so-called uh, COVID stocks, this, you know, the Peloton and, and Zoom and so forth. I would argue that I don't think those companies, if they even still exist, they will ever see their share price that they saw two years ago uh, ever again. I think that, you know, Enron's collapse shows the value of cash flows, to, or showed it to me. I think that it, it is impossible to not bear itself out that having a balance sheet, having those cash flows will be an immeasurable benefit uh, to Sonoba and its shareholders. You know, you and a lot of your peers, as you pointed out, are now in the renewable sector. Many uh, examples, dozens of leaders have built companies in the renewable sector have come out of Enron. And most of them carry with them the DNA of the market opportunity that deregulation creates, and which has now, certainly in the Texas market and beyond, in- increasingly with like companies like IGS and certainly... Um, even in non-solar sectors, championing this idea of consumer choice. We're at a crossroads right now where it is finally being getting the kind of government support uh, at a duration and scale that we've needed for a long time to, to really push uh, forward the idea, not just of consumer choice, but of equity and equ- equitable distribution of the opportunity for uh, consumer choice. I'd love to hear your thoughts post uh, IRA um, at the time of Publishing, I'm sure it will now be uh, more than several weeks old, but it's fresh in our minds right now because it just happened. How do you see the market opportunity sort of sizing up for community or sorry, for consumer choice? And what are the potential battles at hand or or barriers for growth, even with a tailwind like IRA uh, backing us? First of all, I think Wall Street and, and many people don't fully appreciate the impact of the IRA yet. Um, This is going to end up being a monumental event in the energy business. And as a result, a monumental event for the country and for the world. One could argue that this is actually finally, after decades, an energy policy in the United States. Now, we can argue how we got here. We can argue what we did to to put in, in terms of what we put in place versus, say, a carbon tax, for instance. But I don't see personally how this is reversed in any way. And I also don't see how it's really expanded in a significant way in the near future. There seems to be very little political appetite within both parties to do that. So I think that this is the plan, is the point. And whether we can, you know, you like it or don't like it, you like parts of it. I mean, sure, if I had my Figure out what to do with it. Yeah, it, it's what, what it is. And so 
when you look at that, which was passed, the IRA, and you look at the uh, hydrocarbon backdrop, you know, the price of natural gas, $9 plus at Henry Hub, $50 plus in Europe, oil above a $90, coal above $400 a ton. You're burning met coal in the thermal plants for the first time. These are all price signals that, coupled with what the government did with the IRA, basically said, hey, look, this is how we're going to decarbonize. This is the new energy business. And this, in terms of the economics, we're going to take that effectively off the table. So, and we're going to give certainty to that plan, which we've never had before, right? As solar, as a you know, solar industry writ large. And so the impact of that is that we're going to reorder the energy system. The question is, is though, when you took these technologies that you've decided to uh, push, instead of doing a carbon uh, tax, for instance, specifically solar, specifically batteries, not, not really wind because it's centralized. These are decentralized technologies. You just made them economically superior, both in the high hydrocarbon prices, but also within the ITC and other uh, you know, subsidies within the Inflation Reduction Act. And so that is going to have consequences that at least we think we know what the outcome is going to largely look like. But I think everybody else is waking up to this, or most people are, in that these are inherently technologies that don't need a centralized system. In fact, they function better without, without the centralized system. What does that mean? That means that consumers can actually choose to build, quote, power plants on their home by having companies like us as being service providers versus having a monopoly utility that has a single wire and they'll tell you what they're going to do with your money and they're going to tell you how much money you need to pay them and you're going to like it. That's a system that we try to get away from in the 90s, right, with, with the deregulation effort, We're talking again about Enron and, and the efforts there, and it was cut short. I think it was not only cut short with the Enron's collapse, but it was also cut short that we didn't have a technological fundamental change, unlike what was going on at the time in telecommunications with the internet and cellular. We now have that change. We now have that policy. And what that means is, is that we're going to see significant change in the regulatory structure. And when you look at the two things that are remaining, it's reliability and permitting. And consumers' choice is, is broad uh, focus uh, in terms of what the determinant is going to be. So the consumers are going to choose what the path is going to be, is my point. When you look at permitting, if there's not loosening a permitting of, of transmission lines for wind farms and solar and gas and, and who knows what, coal plants and others, then, and pipelines... That's going to make that the current constraints of trying to deal with the electric vehicle adoption, for instance, that's going to make that more and more decentralized by definition. The, the, the second is, is going back into reliability. And this is where the big war is going to take place. The utilities are saying, you need to pay me an astronomical amount of money. I need to totally gut net metering. I need to gut consumer choice. I need to gut competition all in the name of reliability because you force solar, you force wind on me. And I'm more than happy to go out there and build all those plants because I'll just you know, continue to move rates up, up through that spending, right? And the consumers are going to come back and say, wait a minute, I can put the solar, I can put the batteries in, and I can actually have more reliability because climate change is impacting you, wildfires, hurricanes, et cetera. And I can do this in a cheaper fashion with better service from somebody like Sonova. And that service is going to be huge. The days of thinking about putting, quote, panels or boxes on a house 
are numbered, if not over. And it's all going to be about how do you keep that power flowing? How do you have that fast response, that service, just like a utility is? And so more and more consumers are looking to us as the primary power provider for that reason. And so that fundamentally shifts this whole argument over what we're going to do about climate change, how the energy business is going to look, what the energy policy is to we need to have a level of reliability. And how do we make that happen and allow consumers cheaper energy that's more that that's even maybe more reliable and then reliability within the consumer? If you you look at broadly, not all consumers are equal. What about somebody staying at home that has to be on their computer all the time, programming, whatever? They have a higher demand for reliability at home than somebody like me that goes into the office every single day, right? And so that willingness to pay should be different. Right now, it's Soviet style. It's, everybody's treated the same. So we need, to, we need to open things up, and it's going to happen. We're going to have this fight about reliability. We're going to have a fight about what the utility can and cannot do. We're going to have a fight about what consumers can and cannot do. And that's ultimately what's going to end up happening. The consumer always has the, the final vote in the United States because consumers are also called something else, voters. And so we're going to see this on a state-by-state basis. And already, to my point, look at what the California utilities and their union did right after the IRA was passed. Oh, now we can go back out there and, and gouge the consumers. No, gouging consumers prior to the IRA passage is the same as gouging consumers after the IRA passage. You're abusing your monopoly rights. You're abusing consumers. And you should be held in check. And the government, the local government, obviously the state of California, should do that and be on the side of consumers. So this is going to be something that we're going to be facing, not just in behind the meter, uh, but also in front of the meter. And what what are consumers allowed to do with their own homes? That that I predict is going to be the outcome and and the the topics of conversation in the next few years. Hey, family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Have you been curious about utility-scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid-cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. Its built-in DC-to-DC coupling combined with other features like higher energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. When you say the California unions are gouging consumers after the IRA passage, what does that look like? Well, it looks like taking a, a net metering policy, which we're supportive of, of amending and that and, and trying to find the right balance uh, effectively of cash flows to the monopolies and, 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 the, and the union to have uh, a lot, right, right amount of reliability 
across all different segments of society. And, and what I mean by that, not just income class, but also commercial, industrial, residential customers up against the what, what sort of rights uh, to choose and not pay an egregious and anti-competitive amount of money do consumers have, not just residential consumers, but industrial and commercial right. consumers as well. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. opt out of that system if they want. Well, and, and it really comes in and says, well, if you can opt out, then maybe somebody else that can, you know, how's that work? And, and, and this gets to another point is about socializing of losses. Like there's an, a number of, and climbing, unfortunately, of Americans that are defaulting on their power bills for the utilities, yeah. right? Because they can't pay yeah. them because of the skyrocketing costs. So yeah. who pays 20, that? Up to 20% is, 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 is uh, noted. I right saw now. that I read yesterday. An article yesterday. Yeah. 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 And, 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 I, and I would say, unfortunately, I think that number climbs for a whole host of reasons, mainly because the kilowatt hour rate is definitely moving higher across the board. So when you look at, um, you know, from the utilities, so when you look at that, you know, the, the, the outcome here of who pays those bills, well, the, the losses are socialized. And so those of us that pay the bill pay for those people that don't pay, right? And so my response of, you know, energy equality, having equality access or, or equal access rather to renewable energy is we will do, and parts of the IRA address this in a pretty material way with ex, you know expanded ITC for those that um, are challenged on the credit side or income side. But there also should be in each state an extension of that credit wrap effectively and socialization of credit losses that the utilities enjoy should be enjoyed by service providers like us, that we would have to post financials with the state, we'd have to be on the hook for things uh, financially, but we would make you know, the, the same decision to go out there and put solar on homes that we, we knew were credit challenged if we had the same credit wrap that the state gives the monopolies and the utilities. And, I, and you can see some of these programs, some of which we've done, some of which I think will be announced in the not too distant future, uh, where individual states have gone through and try to do some uh, guarantees on loans and so forth to consumers that are LMI consumers. I think that needs to be greatly expanded and made, and made equal. Here's that equality word again, both to monopolies and to the service providers like us on the other side of the meter to have true energy equality in society. It's interesting because uh, as someone who spent a lot of time developing solar projects, large-scale solar projects in we'll call it developing nations throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, we afford other countries the ability to have credit assurance in ways that we don't afford our own U.S. citizens, backstopped in many cases by funds that are uh, taxpayer supported. It's remarkable. Uh, and, it, and it is as in the way that you present it, certainly, and I hadn't thought about this in light of how you just presented it. It's, there's an incredible opportunity for a reallocation of capital in, an, in a fair and equitable way to the service providers that are best capable of deploying the technology that provides the reliability our grid needs, right? It's an, it's a, but it, there, there are going to be enormous headwinds because it's changing the way that we've done things for a hundred years. That's right. Hmm. And I think that to, to a lot of folks and, and I obviously came out of the centralized power industry. So I, I think, you know, you do have a perspective on this that I think is somewhat unique. I think a lot of the the mechanisms that have been used in terms of tariff policies with regards to generation and behind the meter and so forth were in effect rather clumsy. 
um, and didn't reflect the physical realities of power and how it actually is, is generated flows and, and is used by consumers. So I'm very supportive of, of bringing those to a, rela- you know, a real point, if you will, and working in conjunction with the centralized utilities or the ISOs, the independent system operators, regional transmission organizations like Cal ISO, NEPOL, and so forth, ERCOT. And so information must flow. There must be an integration. Right now, the utilities literally disregard our generation and storage capabilities completely, which is, if you think about it, particularly with the IRA passage, this is means tens of billions, if not more dollars, are going to go to waste. And, and that is that cannot stand. That, that, that has to change. So we have to come together to really develop a new system, just like the Internet in the 90s, with the cellular telephony, IP telephony, and so forth came about, where you've had centralized and decentralized coming together. You have wireless, which is us, right, and wire coming together to really create a new ecosystem completely that serve consumers better and cheaper. So a couple things I want to unpack here. If we use telecom as analogous, like energy uh, is going to leapfrog in certain ways, the way that telecom did in both market and consumer acceptance. I remember in the 90s, my dad ran his own construction company. He had a bag phone, right? Which made us sort of part of the 1%, even though we were like a poor family. He was a construction worker who realized like, if I have connectivity and I can talk to my crew, I can move things faster. And it did in fact impact the bottom line of his business and it made his customers uh, more successful and his team more successful. Um, so so that like that access to that technology transformed the way he did his business in in a very meaningful way. And we're going to see that sort of a knock-on effect with how energy is both created, distributed, used, stored, compensated. But I wonder if you can unpack a statement that you made earlier. The days of thinking of panels or, or boxes on the house are all but over. I'm not sure I really understand what you mean by that. People think, most people, that you went out and you put solar panels on the home was a lot like going out and getting a refrigerator that needed maybe some installation work back to your dad's days, right? And that was it. And it doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't break, no moving parts, it's over. And that's just not ever been true. There's maintenance that needs to be done that needed to have a service contract with it. But as you add storage, as you add EVs, as you add generators maybe, or fuel cells, which we're testing, load management is coming on very strong. And then you may even change out the loads, right? Heat pumps for uh, some of the conventional technologies. So if you do, the, as you look at the world that way, you became, you took something that was maybe simplified too much with local policies and so forth and saying, hey, look, just put it on there. It'll, it'll wipe your bill off in an appliance to something that you're creating a system, a mini utility system. We call it a nano grid for years here on the home. And then you're aggregating those homes and businesses together to provide more wholesale or societal, as I, as I would like to say, a benefit. And you know, when you, when you look at the world from an appliance standpoint, and you look at the world from a service standpoint, those two very different worlds. And the reality is a consumer doesn't really care about the panels. Well, most consumers, the vast majority, they care That's about the power. The mass, the mass market consumer. Right. And, and so when you look at it that way, and then you look at the complexity of interconnecting into a centralized system, and it goes back to the information flow, the actual physical power flows and, and both demand supply and so forth and where that goes. All that is a very complex service delivery. 
And when you are you you are doing whatever you know simplified version of whatever works for you and your house, and that's it. And that system may or may not work. And the utility therefore says, well, if it may or may not work, I can't count on it as part of my reserve requirement being there. You can easily see how this the wheels come off the wagon, so to speak. And what you want to do is say, look, we need to have a service provider that's financially accountable. So that they mess up, like in the de- in, in the deregulated markets like Houston, Dallas, et cetera, your retail electric provider, you got to post capital, million, you know, million plus dollars and be financially liable for that. We need to have something like that, probably much more so given that we're dealing with physical assets. And, and then we are accountable for making sure we're working with the centralized party, whether it's the regional transmission organization or the utility, to actually optimize the power system's delivery for both the consumer, but also society writ large. And so I think the days of the appliance are, are like I said, numbered or over. And the days of, of actually recognizing that we're delivering a service, that has to be here because it's, it is necessary to expand and do the penetration that we all want out of solar and batteries and, and, and other technologies, but yet maintain and know, enhance the reliability of the existing system that was built in the industrial age. So it's, it, to me, it's an inevitable outcome of, what, uh, of, of our industry and a growth of our industry. Another uh, extrapolation, the one from uh, the wireless industry, is now you know, Ma Bell had wire, poles and wires. Companies like uh, Verizon, the largest Sprint, and others created uh, wireless networks. And upon those wireless networks, even further companies, U.S. Wireless and Cricket, now exist as highly profitable companies, mind you, that operate in this sort of new world of connectivity uh, for telecom. Do you see the kind of business that Sonova is building more a telecom, a more a, a, a Verizon or a Cricket Wireless? And how do you think about that ecosystem of the kinds of companies that can and will evolve over the next decade to service this new version of the, of the utility? Well, I, I think of us... It's dangerous to use analogies, right, Nico? Uh, but I do think that we're more of the the Verizon or AT and T and service providers. What I will say though is is that I think it's very clear that AT and T survived the telecom deregulation, blown apart by the uh, the breakup, then reassembled mm-hmm. mainly through SBC, right, with Ed Whitaker and so forth, and and then you know survived an onslaught, including bad moves into cable and all this other stuff. Because they had so much financial wherewithal with through the mm-hmm. reassembly of the baby bells. And I think others, you know, T-Mobile, good example and so forth. I, I think I think they survived because they were they built the right service company and and you know, they have they've had some years that are better than others, right? But yeah. I think largely anytime you look at an industry that goes through a transformation, the initial fascination is with the boxes, which I'll colloquially mm-hmm. call, right? The technology. So look at yeah. the internet. Boom, yeah. Cisco routers. I don't even know what a router did, but I'm buying that thing. And it, you know, the the PCs, remember Dell, like, you know, it was going off like a rocket. Um, and and then it moves into the service providers, the Amazon, the Google. Yeah. Uh, and and others out there that you look at in terms of providing services over software, a Microsoft, et cetera, mm-hmm. versus the box makers, right? Themselves. And and I think that the same is gonna happen here. The fascination, I get it, um, with boxes, inverters, panels, batteries, ESS systems, you know, load managers. I totally understand that. 
Um, and there's, those are great businesses and they're going to be great businesses for a while because of the sheer growth, right, of our industry. But the other piece of this that really matters long-term and you must think long-term as, as the CEO and as the shareholder is, is that, you know, the service providers are ultimately where the value is going to bucket because you own the customer, you own that relationship, you, you work to keep that relationship all the time. You have to do the financing. You are having to be involved in making sure the power flows, not every day, but every every hour, every minute. And that is a completely different paradigm. And that is a completely different model that takes a lot more scale, takes a lot more software. It takes a lot more logistics and operational capacity and financial capacity than building a, a manufacturer that makes you know, certain pieces of gear that we that we buy. So I think over time, that service business, which you must focus on the service, I think getting involved in manufacturing the boxes and so forth, my personal opinion, is a mistake. But as that service business really takes off as the proliferation of the, of the boxes, I'm going to keep using that term, you know, poly, you know, goes exponential, which we're seeing. Like that's here in terms of here's, here's batteries, here's, you know, EV chargers, here's load managers, et cetera. Then that makes more and more of the value to the customer of the service provider providing that service and doing it within 72 hours or less right now, as we've, we've laid out publicly and being there for the consumer and making sure that the power flows, that becomes all the more valuable of a place to be. So that's our view is a history. It's not different this time. We're going through the same process in this industry that went through in telecommunications that's gone through and, and other industries that we can take a look at. And we are well on our way to, I think, people recognizing the value of a service provider. What do you think in light of the investment, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the tailwind generally of consumer sentiment? Enterprising entrepreneurs should be spending their time to best leverage the sort of the, the next 10 years of growth. You've obviously created an iconic service company, but when you talk to, you know, young grads coming out of A&M or Rice or Harvard uh, who are asking you where they should point their attention. Where do you think like the, you know, what's the, I don't know if it's like the Enron, but like where, where do you people tell people to point their efforts and their, and their skill sets? Well, I think of course, everybody's different and, and what do they want? You know, what are they good at? What do they want out of life? How do they want to lead their lives? I mean, we, we talked about earlier, you know, I made a different decision than the vast majority of people out there for better or for worse. Right. Um, and, you know, I would say that that's the first and foremost is what do you want to do? What do you like? What are you passionate about? How do you want to live your life? And then from there, I can give advice about, okay, well, then think about this. Think about that, whatever the, the, those paths may be. And then from there, looking at the energy business, especially to your point after the Inflation Reduction Act was passed last week, I think from there, you take a look at and say, all right, there are some of these technologies, carbon sequestration, hydrogen. These are all technologies that, frankly, need a lot more development to them to really realize and, and to catch up to where solar and storage is. And that may be more higher risk if you were to go in those, in those you know, type of companies or look to start those kind of type of companies up. Then you have to assess after your risk you know, appetite, if you will, Maybe you want to go do something that is in solar, but then you start looking at, do you want to be in front of the meter? Do you want to be in, in behind the meter? And, and, and then from there, 
you know, would you rather work in manufacturing, you know, for, for, you know, good, good manufacturing firms that we partner with, or would you rather be in the service providing? Cause you want to write software, you want to go out there and, and, uh, you know, work with dealers and be more on the people side, work with customers and so forth. So it really, you know, when I, when I, I, I give advice is say like, that's kind of a, a decision tree the user, you know, you would go down and I, I'd take you down. I think from there, I, I caution, and, and this is even more so on the investor side, is there are going to be few winners in this space. And the reason is, is that the amount of financial scale and operational scale that it takes to be really successful here is way underestimated. This is not the high-tech industry where you can just develop a little piece of software, have it worth billions of dollars, and, and then go sell it maybe to somebody or keep running the business. Software, in many ways, is 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 being totally managed and done by either the hardware manufacturers or the service providers like ourselves, and it's mainly the service providers. So there's a lot less of an opportunity out there, and you need to recognize that. Now, part of that recognition could be that you do a startup, say, coming out of college, and you do a software P, you know, startup, and you understand that you need to quickly flip it to a company like mine, you know, for instance, or a hardware company, you know, flip it to another one of our partners in the hardware side of things. And not build out distribution, not build out sales, not spend all take all that money in there, and and really eliminate your your personal upside as the entrepreneur. Yeah. So those are the kind of pieces of advice that I give. Mm-hmm. Um, I always remind people it's worth what you paid me for it. So uh, you know, uh, you do what you do what you want, but that that's the typical advice I give. Well, I believe we're paying you with the most valuable thing we have, which is our attention and uh, our time. That's fair. So, <laughs> I'm still listening. I want to know, as you think about the time between Enron and Sonova, and we don't need to spend a ton of, uh, of time or cycles on this, but you, you know, Sonova isn't your first rodeo. You were uh, an advisor to FERC. You were an investor. You started Standard Renewable Energy, one of, one of the first to offer energy efficiency products and services, uh, and you sold that to NRG started Suncap to provide financial services, which ultimately, I believe, became sort of the under the underpinning of what would become Sonova. I'm curious, when you think about like those milestones I just mentioned, what do you now understand that you were honing in your career development from a skill set perspective and attributes as a leader? Yeah, I, I do think often about this and reflection. And in part, I'd freely admit that, you know, going back and reflecting on it, is that really productive? I've had a number of people say it's not really productive to do that. You are where you are now and you know, move ahead. What was done was done. And what I would say is like, for instance, um, the venture capital, the small firm Contango, that wasn't very long. And it was at, 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 at the most four years. Um, and that'd be kind. I think it was probably closer to the three. But, um, you know, I, I consider that I was looking, I, I, I saw the energy business changing. I saw China becoming involved in the global economy and the energy consumption that went with that, that drove oil to $150 a barrel, natural gas to $15 an M and BTU, all to be undone by the financial crisis and the really the, the uh, mania that lasted you know, 14 years, arguably, on Wall Street for shale oil and gas, right? That, that now is over, right, as of a year or so ago. But when you look at that, I'd say I kind of was, I was basically effectively wandering in the desert for a number of years, you know, for the container, looking for the right technology, looking for solar, looking for batteries. I knew from my experience in running physical systems, including utility uh, from the control room at Enron, that 
you know, there needed to be a change. I, I, I felt that. And then coupled with the rise of China and so forth, there had to be a change coupled with climate change uh, risk. And so, you know, that was a part of my career that I felt like I didn't really get much out of. But then in hindsight, you know, would I be the person and would Sonova be here without that kind of experience? Um, you know, no doubt without standard being, you know, as a contractor, right? Like our dealers today, I wouldn't have the background and understanding of building, you know, Suncap and certainly not Sonova. And then without Suncap, you know, that certainly, you know, I would say I learned the, the, the least because it was such a short period of time, but it certainly gave me the initial thoughts about what to do things a little bit differently than when I started Sonova. But mostly it's, it, it showed me like, hey, this works, like, let's do this again. And let's, this time, let's, let's really keep it <laughs> and run it um, and, and build it up. And that, that became Sonova. So I think it's extremely difficult and not impossible to take out your failures. And I've, I've had the, the, I, I don't consider Contango a success. I don't, I don't consider, you know, as part of that, you know, I made an investment in a biodiesel firm. That was really my idea that, that that's all I need. That was my biggest failure in my, my career. And, and so those failures and that exposure, instead of just, you know, why didn't I just go long oil in 2003 when I figured this out, like some of my friends did and, and they literally don't need to work anymore, right? For the, since that time, that's a good question I often ask myself. But it was driven. It was me driving to be a part of the solution, you know. And I think this time, with those kind of years of experience, those kind of failures underneath me, has enabled me to be here with Sonova and, and hopefully growing and really making sure that Sonova makes the difference. Uh, that Sonova really changes the, the world, uh, and with. Without those learnings, I, I, I'm quite confident, even in, in, at late at night, there's no way I would be here. Hmm. I'm hoping for like um, an abbreviated answer to this, although I'm sure we could get a longer answer. But I wonder if there is something that you have considered and can sum up as a, uh, a very a concise, either don't go down this path or here's something I did that you shouldn't. Um, when you look at Sonova as a product, it's a two-part question that joins and you'll see. Uh, does it look substantially like what you set out to build? And what I'm most curious about is, was there some instructive uh, dead end or a place where you had to pivot or stop digging where you you hit a, a wall and decided to kind of take the company in a slightly different or completely different direction than what you set out to build? In a word, no. Uh, the strategy that I set out, and and again, I think it was it was formed by my failures and and, and prior successes, mm. is is intact. You know, when you look at the major public companies, I think certainly are the service providers. We're the ones that have stuck to our original strategy by far. Everybody else has changed in many cases multiple mm -hmm. times. And I would even go as far to say as the changes that we make that may surprise people, ones I've done, ones I, I will do, they're planned. And they're planned because what I've learned over time is you can have the right idea, but if it's the wrong time, it's just as wrong, if not even more incorrect to do it. And so I wait for the market to catch up and get to a point where I think, hey, I need to shift gears now. And it's planned. Uh, I've thought about it for a long time. Does even the board understand that? I don't know. You have to ask them, but sometimes, you know, probably not. Um, but I, I do. I get it. A fly on the wall in the board happen. meeting for Sonova would be a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have, we have. We always have great discussions and good times. But um, one of the you few know, moments where, where I'd get to see John, John Berger get beat up in some way. <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely, definitely. And and if you went home with me at oh. night, you definitely see that as well. So yeah, well, um, actually the management team does a pretty good yeah, management team does a pretty good job of that too. That's um, good. 
So I, I, I would say that uh, there are things that Sonova will do in the coming months and years that people are like, that was a change. And I will look at it and say, no, I knew I didn't know exactly when to make that that shift and that decision. But I knew along the lines what, what was going to happen. Now, maybe that runs out someday. But right now, you know, as I reflect on the IRA passes, I reflect on what's going on in hydrocarbon prices globally. I reflect on climate change. I actually see that what we've what I've laid out 10 plus years ago is 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 accurate. And we're going to continue to make those dip, you know, those those changes. You just mentioned that sometimes uh, I wasn't going to ask this question, but you said sometimes the management team um, can beat you up. And I think that that is a hallmark of having a balanced and well-run company, that it's not uh, autocratic. It's not what John says goes. Uh, and I've seen how you empower your team to make decisions and to lead the company. What attributes do you look for in team members and in particular in leadership for your company? Well, there, there, there's, as there's different paths to go in life and none, none are right, none are wrong, there's different personalities and, and traits to look for. And, and so I reject the um, social media, you know, you know, uh, you know short snippets of, of leadership. I find them to be, um, you know, not, not accurate and, and certainly um, things that can oversimplify a very difficult um, and, and complex set of traits that make certain leaders successful and, and, and certain others not successful. I think, you know, first and foremost is, this is a this is a company that is literally trying to change the world. That we we have a purpose here that is higher than than making money, but we will make money. Uh, we do generate cash. Uh, we will move uh, and make sure our shareholders have that cash flow per, per share because I believe strongly in capitalism is the mechanism to, to to change the world. But we are here fundamentally to change the world and make the world a better place. And so I need people that are passionate about that. They're passionate about coming in and making a change. They're passionate about thinking differently. They're passionate about obviously our mission and, and what we want to leave, you know, the next generation. And if without that passion, you, you can't, you can't be here. You just, it won't make it. It'll, it'll become a grind and, and, and you just won't make it. The second thing is, you know, demonstrate that you can get your hands dirty. I, I'm never going to have somebody that says, oh, you know, I'm not doing that. Now, assigning and delegating authority has to happen. So if you, if you hold it in, if you don't hire people that are better than you, which is a constant problem in corporate America, uh, because you're afraid they're going to take your job, really, and you never verbalize it, but that's what you're really thinking, then that becomes a huge problem. And so I, I, I root those folks out and saying, hey, you need to hire better, you need to delegate, but at the same time, don't become one of these people that you don't want to get your hands dirty on things because, you know, have other people do that, so to speak. I think, you know, clearly being intelligent, you know, that's that comes without saying, but there's a lot of smart people in the world. There's a lot of lot, lot of uh, folks that are hardworking, but you know, we do demand a lot more time. Than I think the average you know job out there, it's quite competent. It goes back to that passion. The other point that's really important is is honesty. If you're not honest, if you're not trustworthy, you're gone. I can't take it. Um, it's it's just it, if you're that not like a one strike policy. If it's bad enough, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, if if I if you said you were going to lunch, you know, someplace else, and you end up some. I mean, you know, you know that that I don't care. I'm just using sure. an example, like yeah. small, you know, small things. Like 
Um, Small things you really weren't working. Yeah. You, you really weren't working. You were, you were eating dessert with somebody or something like that. You know, that, that, okay. I can get around that, you know, a couple of times, but you know, uh, obviously theft of any kind, uh, a real ethical breakage, um, you know, you, you did something harmful to somebody. You, you don't think about the consumer in the long term. You know, those are the kind of things that I think that are unforgivable and, and you know, you, you need to leave. And I think that, you know, every time, for instance, even our financial metrics, we constantly ask ourselves, is this intellectually honest? Yes, we can do this. The accountants, the lawyers signed off on it. But is this really when we look at ourselves in the mirror? Is this what we if we're sitting on their side, is this the truth that we're telling through this metric? And I constantly see, uh, whether it's on earnings calls or whether it's on, you know, conference calls and so forth, conferences, where not all CEOs do that. And that to me is baffling. I don't understand that and I'm not going to put up with it. So when you have that kind of directness and, and honesty, then that can come back to you in terms of feedback that you may or may not want to hear. And I think it's important that you have people that are not yes men and women. They are people that tell you what they really think. Now, we can have a, and we do, have very strong debates, including with me being involved in those debates. And then ultimately, if it's a big enough decision, I'll make it, we'll move on. I expect everybody to, to move forward with that. However, I've constantly kept an open mind and I've had managers come back in often and said, hey, I strongly disagree with that decision and here's why. And this is starting to happen. Like I thought, I think you need to reconsider. I think you made a dumb decision. And I'll that own it. Courage. I'll like, yeah, you're right. I, I made a bad decision. Reverse it. Let's go your way. Um, so you, I think, it I think that's to, important. Go ahead. It speaks to what you've built. If you have an environment where there are examples of, of uh, your subordinates, your employees, your team coming back and telling you that they think that the decision was made in error and, and, you've, and you've corrected course. That's, that's uh, very telling for me of the kind of culture that you are, that you're trying to build. John, I want to respect the fact that we've just got a couple of minutes left. So I have two questions for you. The first is we always ask if there are any particular uh, sort of personal development tools. I like to call them books, um, but um, I like to call books personal development tools in that regard. Um, that is there anything in particular that you gift or, or refer to often that uh, others might go and read because you you saw it as informative or instructive on how you think about business or how you think about life. A particular book that you would recommend? I love the little pamphlet message to Garcia. You know, it's it's often used by business schools and so forth. I love that. Um, what, I truly what's it believe called? message to Garcia. It's okay. written. I don't know how many years ago. I don't yeah, know a long time. Um, under Garcia. I guess it was probably by Albert years Hutter, ago. Hubbard. Okay. The other one is um, uh, I think. Uh, Horitz wrote the hard thing about hard things. And I, I like that. Uh, I think it, it, I've, I've recommended to those that are thinking about going down the entrepreneurial path to read that because I think it's um, aside from the profanity that he uses it and everything else that, uh, but I think it's very hard hitting about the reality. I think too often, you know, you're looking at things that, Oh, here's a success story that, you know, five years later, it's not a success story in these books and so forth. I think this is really about like, here's what really happens, regardless of whether that investment was successful or not. Here's the realities and the tough things that, that entrepreneurs have to deal with that most don't deal with very well. And I, and I, found, I found that to be very, very helpful. Um, but most of all, I listen 
I like to talk to folks. I like to talk to folks that have been there, done that. And before I go down a path, I'll, I'll go through different friends and networks and say to complete strangers, I, I, I don't know anything about what I'm about to do. And I'd like to hear from you that did it. What went right? What went wrong? What was your advice so that I possibly can learn the easy way and not make those mistakes versus learning the hard way and making mistakes? So I think learning from people I found to be far more superior than reading any book. I love it. My, um, that's why I created this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's not lost on me, my friend. Uh, primary uh, research, as our friend Sheldon calls it. Is there a place where you are most often found, are you on Twitter most? Like how would, how would someone engage with you or try to connect with you in a way that you often frequent? Yeah, uh, I do LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I do Twitter. Obviously I don't tweet as much as, as Elon or anything else like that, but, uh, but you're active on Twitter. Yes. Active cool. on Twitter. Uh, we should get you on a Twitter space sometime, John. Yeah. Have you done any of those where you jump into the listen? No, I'll, I'll break you in on one of those one of these days. Yeah. Well, we'll link to all of the Sonova resources, including your LinkedIn page for folks to reach out to you. Do you have it locked where they have to know your email? No, no. Very well, very <laughs> well. They have to, but what they do need to do is create a compelling, uh, if you just click that connect link, he's going to, he's not even going to pay attention to it. You have to create a compelling argument for why he should connect with you. And that should be second nature for you now networking on LinkedIn. Just go ahead and do that. John, I want to end today as we always do with a bold prediction. Uh, what do you believe is the next huge problem we've got to solve in the clean energy sector? What's holding us back? What do you see in your crystal ball that we're going to resolve over the next five to 10 years? Consumer choice. I believe that there will be a radical overhaul of the regulatory structure of the U.S. power industry and indeed the U.S. energy industry, and it will all go in the favor of the consumer. It has to. And renewable energy is the path to consumer choice and success as it, as it be to redo the energy business. And really, I think it sounds dramatic, but just to save mankind. I think it absolutely is, is the way we have to go. We must give the power to the person and to make the decision. And that I think is absolutely going to happen. That's inspiring. John Berger is founder and CEO of Sonova, a publicly traded solar services company. We'll call it clean energy services company, radically transforming the way that consumers can engage with their electricity and the reliability therein. John, it's been really fantastic to hear your thoughts and musings. To learn more about your background, I really appreciate your generosity coming on Suncast, and I hope to have you back sometime soon. be my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nico. Well, that is a wrap on today's conversation with John Berger, CEO of Sonova. John, I'm so grateful for your kindness and generosity and the ability, to, as, I, as we just discussed, to kind of sit at your feet and learn in that alpha research methodology from someone who's been there to help in, inform how I, how we might be thinking about what the Inflation Reduction Act means for us, for our businesses, for the direction of this industry that is lifting many people out of energy poverty and that is lifting many entrepreneurs into new opportunities to, as Sonova is doing, change the world. How about you, Solar Warrior? What did you learn from that conversation? You know, since I know that you are already digitally connected, uh, I have a sense that you are going to be hopping online at some point today. If you, like me, are jumping on LinkedIn, I'd love it if you would scroll over to my profile and what you can find in the show notes and find the post that we've made about this episode. 
absent that, feel free to just DM me your thoughts on this episode or tweet at Nico Mayo or at my Suncast your thoughts on the episode with John Berger. I'm sure if you, like many, go and find and follow him and Sonova on social, you'll see their post as well about the interview that we've done here with John. And I'm eager to hear how it resonated with you. Who else do you think needs to hear this story? You know, sharing it is uh, a true kindness that you can offer. I hope you'll tune in next week for another long form executive profile conversation like this with an energy leader on the front lines of the clean energy revolution, as well as Tuesdays where we often will be profiling live events from perhaps our uh, media zone from RE plus or other events or our tactical Tuesdays where we have subject matter experts go deep on exactly how you can build your career and, and better understand some area of the industry. Perhaps it's distributed energy resources, DERs, or perhaps it is uh, new energy battery systems. In some way, we are trying to help you leverage their knowledge for your gain on those Tuesdays. Tactical Tuesdays are where it's at. If you're eager to keep learning about the different things that we discussed here, including some of the links for books, etc., you, my fellow PhiloMath, can go find those resources from this and every other discussion, along with social media links to John and other podcast guests and book recommendations on the blog at mysuncast.com, clicking on the episodes tab. I guess the last thing that I would like to ask is just as a reminder, the kindest thing that you could do is to share your opinion about how you feel about Suncast through your five-star rating and enthusiastic review on Apple or wherever else you get your podcast. The easiest way to do that is ratethispodcast.com forward slash Suncast. Truly takes about three minutes and really helps others learn from us as you have today. Finally, thank you to our sponsors who help make this show and this content free to you. There are other podcasts that you need to subscribe to and perhaps they are ad-free and perhaps they provide different level of analysis and context. But Suncast is about helping you along your journey. And these companies, our sponsors, want to let you know that they've got your back. They've covered the cost of producing this show so that you don't have to. So you can learn about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. We also have our sponsors proudly listed on our homepage at mysuncast.com. You could also learn on our sponsor page how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like them twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.